Okay, we'd like to welcome you to part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for December 16th, 2007, where we continue the hypocrisy of the Islamic Muslim religion. And this next portion of it is entitled, The Twisted Logic. The poor Muslims, they get insulted, but we get beheaded. Now this is just documenting a little bit of some of the Muslim atrocities. And I'm not saying there's that America doesn't have all kind of atrocities, or other particular uh, races or religions don't have all kind of atrocities. The Catholic Church, they would pale in comparison to. Okay, It's just the double standard that exists here, is what I guess we're trying to point out. Um, Muslims claim to be the murderers of at least 3,000 innocents in New York and expect no criticism. Muslims murder 202 par- tourists in Bali and expect no criticism. Now remember, we, we started this teaching out where we have this Muslim peace demonstration and they're marching with their signs, behead all those who insult Islam, you know, Europe is the cancer, Islam is the answer, and all these things, this absolutely, totally threatening posture, they're commanded in the Quran to kill, but yet, if you say one thing against them, in the press or anywhere else, they go ballistic. You can't say one thing. They can rape, pillage, and do whatever they want to do, but you better not say anything against them. Boy, that's the, if that's not hypocrisy, I don't know what is. Muslims murder 333 school children and their teachers in Beslan and expect no criticism. Muslims murder 292 innocents, mainly Kenyans and Tanzanians, at two U.S. embassies and expect no criticism. Muslims murder 241 U.S. and 58 French peacekeepers in Beirut and expect no criticism. And it goes on and on and on here. Okay, and then we get to Muslims murder 500,000 in Darfur. This is Sudan. I recently watched a documentary on this and what was going on in Sudan. And if that doesn't get you mad, I don't know what will. Because you talk about hypocrisy. In this particular city, um, a region, Darfur, the Muslims have come in and essentially wage jihad against anyone who is a non-believer in Islam. Okay, And what they've done is they've killed many of these people. They've all been driven from the city. They're all out in the desert. Okay, Now... Some of the countries banded together, I don't know if the UN has anything to do with this, but they banded together, and what they did is they sent observers. What the observers have done is they're military guys with, they've brought food and clothing and stuff like that, a little bit, not a lot. Okay, And they're out there in the middle of this desert, and the city is off in the distance, and you have this big, gigantic almost nomadic tribe now. These are people that have been driven from their homes, their businesses, they've lost everything. 500,000 people have been killed and murdered by the Muslims and the Islamic people there because they were not, they refused to convert to Islam. Okay? And what happens is, is in the evenings, it gets real cold evidently during certain times of the year, and they'll send the women out to gather firewood. And the women go out and gather firewood because if they sent the men out, they'd get just shot and killed. So these brave men send their women out, and what happens to the women is they don't kill them, they rape them. So they rape them, and when they come back many times with their firewood, they've already been raped and everything else, but they don't get killed, so they, you know. And this is common. 
what they're trying to do is degrade and defile as much as possible, and they're all doing this in the name of Islam and Allah. And yet the world sits back and really has done nothing. These observers could not even engage these Muslim people in battle. It's like they had guns, but they couldn't use them. Yeah, they fed them and they gave them a little bit of food and this. But if the Muslims came into these villages, now they have this military kind of this military kind of style base on the outskirts of this village that's in the middle of the desert. It was showing these Muslim guys coming in with trucks and you know machine gunning people down and they're torching everything and all the fires are going up. They couldn't do a thing. They just had to sit there. I I, I was, oh man, I, th this this documentary. If this didn't get you mad, I don't know what would. And um, supposedly by the end of it, they they had some type type of resolvement of this. But again, you, you this is the ultimate fruit of Islam. If you let it carry to its logical conclusion, this is where it'll get you. And America refused to really step in, although they did do more than anyone else. But they refused to step in and intervene because we have all kind of business ties with the Sudan. A lot of, I, I, I'm not 100% sure exactly all of the, but there were some real, real, real big businesses that were pressuring our government to just say, leave them alone. Let them do what they're going to do. Because we're going to lose a ton of money if you go in there and you try to interfere with this religious matter. So we've backed off. See, that's the fruit of the Muslims, and that's why I'm doing this teaching, to expose them. To reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. As we as Christians are called to be salt and light, and light exposes darkness. We're exposing darkness today. Um, we go further with this article. Muslims regard Jews as the sons of pigs and monkeys and vow to nuke Israel and expect no criticism. Muslims stoned to death women for getting raped. So if a woman were to accidentally get raped, they get stoned to death. Fair. There's a, there was a documentary uh, Sally Fields did a long time ago, or uh, some little movie, and it was called Not Without My Child. It was about a woman that had married an Islamic man, and she followed him back to his country. She didn't, he, and he, Presented himself to be something he wasn't, but when he got back into Iran or Iraq or wherever it was, his true color started showing. Because they treat women like absolute dirt and scum. And he went back, and, and it was she had a child, and it was this big thing of how, I mean, you talk about feeling like the walls are closing in. You talk about an oppressive country, satanically evil. Man, I, I never saw, I mean, and it confirmed every other thing I've ever read about this particular culture. It's bondage, and it's satanic bondage. And, um, you know, the women are just treated like dirt. But the women actually can get stoned to death for getting raped, and for leaving the home unescorted. You can get stoned to death if you're a woman and you leave the house unescorted. Seems fair. And they also engage in honor killings of sisters and daughters for unapproved dating. And yet they expect no criticism whatsoever. That's okay. It's okay to do what they're doing in the Sudan and the Dalfour and all these other places. That's alright. Muslims danced in the streets and handed out street sweets to their kids to celebrate the 9-11 atrocity. And expected no criticism. Since 9-11, Muslims have killed over 26,000, wounded over 50,000 in terrorist attacks. And expect no criticism. Uh, Muslims have carried out over 
5,800 fatal terrorist atrocities since 9-11 and countless thousands since the Islamic conquest began in 1623 AD, and they expect no criticism. But if anyone dares to tell the truth about Islam or the Danes publish a cartoon about Muhammad, then let the outpourings of Islamic hate and outrage begin. That is called hypocrisy. So here's another picture we're looking at from this religion of peace demonstration where it says Islam will dominate the world. This next part is entitled Uncle Sam wants the U.S. Muslims to serve. How insane. <laughs> but this is what it was entitled. The Pentagon builds Islamic prayer rooms and hires imams to make military life more appealing. Now, the imams would be like a Muslim type of cleric guy, religious guy, okay? So, our government, the Pentagon itself, has built, has built Islamic prayer rooms. Isn't that ironic that our government saying, you know, Islam is the main threat to us as far as, you know, Iran and, you know, 9-11 and all this other stuff, and yet we go so far as to build Islamic prayer rooms, and the Pentagon, the, the actual place where all the military strategy is usually fomented. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but hey. Uh, this is from 1227.06, this thing. Now, there's a track I also give here. You can click on this link, and it's called Men of Peace. It's from Chick. I show you the cover here. And uh, in this track, you're going to really see, and again, we're, we're confirming, you know, they say they're men of peace, but again, what is the fruit? Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. The fruit of this religion is rotten. And it's absolutely contradictory to the Bible. So, the Bible, the Islamic Bible, or the Quran, commands Muslims to kill infidels. In Islam, the Arabic word kafir refers to non-Muslims, often in a derogatory sense, and is usually translated into English as infidel or unbeliever. Anybody who's a non-Muslim is an infidel or an unbeliever is the point here. Now let's look at some quotes from the Islamic Quran. Here's from Surah 3360. Allah has cursed the unbelievers and proposed for them a blazing hell. Oh, that's nice. That's politically correct. I think we can all get along in our two Abrahamic faiths. Based on that one, what do you think? I'm not a believer in Islam, so it says Allah here has cursed me and proposed for me, for me a blazing hell. Insert your name. What's the next one? Surah 4114. Unbelievers are enemies of Allah, and all they will roast in hell. So now we've got the promise of burning in hell and roasting in hell. It's nice. Why aren't these why aren't these Quran quotes up in the papers and stuff? Come on. Then it says, fight the unbelievers who are near you. That's Surah 9.123. Another translation reads, Believers, make war on the infidels <clears throat> who dwell around you. Let them find harshness in you. Another source reads, Ye who believe, murder those who murder those of the disbelievers. Now, this is a report from Washington. As U.S. troops battle Islamic extremists abroad, the Pentagon and the armed forces are reaching out to Muslims at home. Now, in light of those verses we just read, does this make a whole lot of sense? I like, I'm doing a lot of contrasting with this particular study, so, so that the hypocrisy really hits you in the face. That, really, that, that, that's what we're, I'm trying to accomplish here, because it's so overt. 
An underlying goal is to interest more Muslims in the military. Oh, that's what we want. We want more Muslims in the military. That makes a lot of sense. Which needs officers and troops who can speak Arabic and other relevant languages and understand the culture of places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, let's tell you another thing. If you're a Muslim Islamic person and you enlist in the military, your primary allegiance, according to Allah, will always be with Islam. The only reason I could see them enlisting in this is to infiltrate the military. Not help it. Because America's goals are not are really diametrically opposed as to what Islamic goals would be. An underlying goal, again, is to interest more Muslims in the military, which needs officers and troops who can speak Arabic. The effort is also part of a larger outreach. Pentagon officials say they are striving for mutual understanding with Muslims at home and abroad and to win their support for the U.S. war aims. West Point and other service academies have opened Muslim prayer rooms and have military installations. Now, here's another quote from the uh, Quran. Surah 2, 191 says, Slay them, the unbelievers, wherever you find them, and drive them out of the places whence they drove you out. For persecution is worse than slaughter. It's what they're instructed and told to do. Here's another one. Surah 2, 193. Fight against them until idolatry is no more. And Allah's religion reigns supreme. See, isn't that ironic? They're involved in idol worship, the moon god Allah. And yet, the hypocrisy of this verse is fight against them until idolatry is no more. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, and this is a double-minded religion. So, continuing with this article, it says, Imams serve full and part-time as chaplains at the academies and some bases. Top non-Muslim officials and Pentagon officials have taken to celebrating religious events with Muslims overseas and here in the U.S. There is a message here, and that is that Muslims in the Islamic religion are totally compatible with Western values. Do those Quran verses seem compatible with our values? But that's their, quote, holy book. That's the book they're commanded to observe. I, I guarantee you they think this is hilarious. The Muslims do. The ones in the know. So, who said this quote? That there's a message here that Muslims in the Islamic religion are totally compatible with Western values. Says Deputy Defense Secretary Gordon England in an interview. For the past two years, Mr. England has hosted an iftar, the feast that ends the day time fast during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan at the Army Navy Club in Arlington, Virginia. His guests have included ambassadors, leaders of Muslim American community, and Muslims who serve in the U.S. Armed Forces. President Bush's own words, quote, When some of my country speak in an ill-informed and insulting manner about the Muslim faith, their words are heard abroad and do great harm to our cause in the Middle East. Oh, I'm so sorry, President Bush. I think this whole presentation might be an abomination in your eyes. Sorry about that. An insulting manner about the Muslim faith? Oh, it's okay for them to say we're supposed to roast in hell and burn in hell and they're going to kill us all and murder us and behead us. and That's okay. That's all right. 
But how dare, I mean, President Bush is more on their side than he is anybody else's, it looks like to me. Surah 9.298, Allah is an enemy to unbelievers. Surah 2.161, on unbelievers is the curse of Allah. President Bush also hosted an iftar at the White House in October, as he has done for several years. General Robert Magnus, the assistant commander of the Marine Corps, held one the same month at the Marine Corps barracks in Washington for the defense attaches from predominantly Muslim nations. The U.S. Armed Services don't recruit by religion, but the Pentagon estimates that 3,386 Muslims were serving in the U.S. military as of September. No precise figures are available because while U.S. service members are surveyed on the religion, they are not required to disclose it. Advocacy groups put the number at 15,000, saying many are reluctant to reveal their religion. Uh, African Americans represent the largest share of Muslims in uniform they had. Now, the African Americans have been primarily recruited, or one of the main ways they've been recruited is through the prison systems. Prison systems is a huge recruitment tool for the Muslims. Okay? Surah 3, 157 and 8 says, If you should die or be killed in the cause of Allah, His mercy and forgiveness would surely be better than all the riches they amass. If you should die or be killed before Him, you shall all be gathered. That's their promises. That's why they don't have a problem dying. Because they believe some stupid book that the devil gave them, in these verses, what a rude awakening is, is, you know, if they go and they kill somebody in the name of Allah and they plunge into hell. Surah 554 says, O believers, take not the Jews and the Christians as friends. Now hold on, this is what their unholy book tells them. It says, take not the Jews and the Christians as friends. But, but then again, why would 138 Muslim main, main guys come together and want us to sign this big cooperative thing with the Christians saying that we all serve the same God and they know that's not the truth and we all have this common bond in Abraham why would they do that? well, they're deceiving us they're deceiving the Christians they're duping them they're telling them what they want to hear and again, it's like if you give the devil an inch he'll take him out he'll tell you whatever you want to hear for him to get in a position you know where, where he wants to be so it says, Take not the Jews and the Christians as friends. They are friends of each other. Those of you who make them friends is one of them. God does not guide an unjust people. Now, there's, here's another nice one where it's this woman, and she is fully clothed from head to toe in this Masonic, uh, Masonic Muslim garb. And she's holding a sign that says, Be prepared for the real Holocaust! With an exclamation. Oh, but it's a religion of peace, love, and tolerance. Come on, why can't we all just get along? Now, just so you know, and I've said this before, the reason that the women wear, if you ever see women, and all you see is their eyes, those are the strictest of the Muslims, and they believe the reason that they cover their body from head to toe is because they believe that if one hair is showing outside of, you know, where their eyes peek through, and some of them wear veils beyond that, they believe if one hair is showing that that hair is a dagger in Allah's eye. That's why they that's why they dress this way. Just so you know. Just an FYI for you, for your information. That's what they believe. Crazy stuff. Talk about a religion of bondage, like I said. 
And then we go further with this article. It says, however, uncertain the progress. The military is intensifying its outreach. Well, that's good. I'm glad they're intensifying their outreach to Muslims to bring them into our military. On June 6th, the anniversary of D-Day, he notes Mr. England helped to dictate a new Islamic prayer center at Quantico Marine Corps Base near Washington, whose 6,100 Marines include about 24 Muslims. Um, and according to Lieutenant Commander Abdullah Salfarullah, whatever, a Navy chaplain who serves as their imam. This is Surah 9, 2 through 3. It reads, Allah will humble the unbelievers. Allah and his apostle are free from obligations to idol worshippers. Proclaim a woeful punishment to the unbelievers. Surah 48, 29. Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Those who follow him are ruthless to the unbelievers. Well, hold on. What if you're not being ruthless to the unbelievers? Then you're not being fundamental to the Muslim faith if you call yourself a Muslim. You're a bad Muslim. Those who follow him, meaning Muhammad, are ruthless to unbelievers, but merciful to one another. Through them, Allah seeks to enrage the unbelievers. Sounds like this Allah character is really consumed with death, killing, provoking, persecuting, raping, pillaging, you know, the whole nine yards. Muslim troops say the misunderstandings and the frictions with non-Muslims in uniform arise sometimes, but practicing Islam in a military at war with extremists who profess the same faith isn't a burden, they, say, they add. How is that possible? How, how is that possible? You're part of the same religion that supposedly the Americans are going against in Iran, and you say there's no conflict of interest there? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, Doug brought up the point of that um, at the start of the uh, this Iraqi war. There was a, I think this has happened on other occasions too, there was a Muslim who was in our military that basically set off a bomb in one of the tents or whatever. You know, this is the risk you're absolutely, totally going to run. I mean, if that person is in there to infiltrate and being fundamental to the Islamic faith, that's his command. And they can use whatever means they have to use. Another thing, a, a tenet in the uh, in the Quran is that you can use whatever tactic of deception, whatever it takes to get the job done for Allah, you can do. It's okay to lie. It's okay to do the. It's it's all all right, as long as you get the job done. And I I don't know if I have the the verse on that. I'm, we might read it in the in the course of these things, but it's in there. So, this is Surah 929. The unbelievers are impure, and their abode is hell. Well, that's what they think about us, as Christians. They believe that we're impure, and our abode is hell. Another source reads, humiliate the non-Muslims to such an extent that they surrender and pay tribute. That's what their goal is. Surah 47.4 says, when you meet the unbelievers, smite their necks, means cut off their head, and then when you have made wide slaughter among them, tie fast the bonds and then set them free, either by grace or ransom until the war lays down its burdens. A different translation reads, when you meet the unbelievers in the battlefield, strike off their heads, and when you have laid them low, bind your captives firmly. So I guess whoever lived through this, then you know, you could bind the captives and whatever. But it's saying, you know, strike off their heads. Now, going back to this article... Petty officer, third class Nicholas Burgos, a Sunni Muslim training to be a Navy SEAL, 
where a commando says instructors sometimes goad him by calling him Osama bin Burgos or asking if he's training to help the Taliban. He said, but it's all good fun, he insists. <laughs> if he was being true to his fundamental, the, the, the fundamentals of Islam, he would be doing that exact thing. His father, Asadullah Burgos, is a part-time imam at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, whose roughly 4,000 cadets include 32 Muslims, 12 of whom are foreign students. This is insanity. Surah 973 reads, Make war on the unbelievers and the hypocrites. Be harsh with them. Their ultimate abode is hell. A hapless journey's end. See, it just doesn't say this one or two times in the Quran. It's the point I'm trying to make here. It's all through the Quran. Surah 66.9 Make war on the unbelievers and the hypocrites and deal sternly with them. Hell shall be their home. Evil their fate. Surah 98.51 The unbelievers among the people of the book and the pagans shall burn forever in the fire of hell. They are the vilest of all creatures. That's what they think about us. I'll let their, I'll let their unholy devil book speak for itself. And then you look at the fruit of their actions, which just confirm this. Colonel John Cook, the senior chaplain at West Point, says that after the media reports about the Academy's new Muslim prayer room, he got a call from the self-described concerned citizen who fretted that the Muslims are taking over the world. Now this is Colonel John Cook. I told him, I'm a Christian chaplain, but I have the responsibility to provide for other faith groups. Oh, you do? As a Christian chaplain, you have that responsibility. Show me in the Bible where that's the case, please. Well, son, you don't understand. I work for the government. Exactly. Exactly. You've yoked up with the government, which is an unbiblical thing to do. You, there, any government's mandate is always going to be contrary to true Bible-believing Christianity, unless you, had a, unless you had a government set up purely through Christianity, which we do not have. Colonel Cook goes on to say Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish cadets all have their own chapels at West Point. He notes, it's not direct recruitment program. Well, hold on, I thought that's just what we were talking about. It is a direct recruitment program. Says Sergeant Bandani, but its, but its goal is to educate recruiters to avoid cultural no-nos. Oh boy, now we've got to be politically correct so we can all be happy and get along. And to foster good relations with the American with Arab American communities. The overall objective is to develop solid relationships with the, <coughs> with the Arab and Muslim communities for the 21st and 22nd centuries. Wow, they're really thick in the head. This isn't something that's just a band-aid treatment. Oh, boy, I'm really glad they got this all figured out for us. Now, this next article is entitled, The Muslim Religion is the Fastest Growing Religion Per Capita in the United States, Especially the Minority Races. Allah or Jesus by Rick Matthews. Last month I attended my annual training session. Now this is this, I believe this pastor. Last month I attended my annual training session that required for maintaining my state prison security clearance. During the training session, there was a presentation by three speakers representing the Roman Catholics, the Protestants, and the Muslims, who explained each of their beliefs. I was particularly interested in what the Islamic Imam had to say. The Imam gave a great presentation of the basics of Islam, complete with a video. After the presentations, time was provided for Q&A. When it was my turn, I directed my question to the Imam and asked, quote, Please correct me if I'm wrong, 
But I understand that most imams and clerics of, of Islam have declared holy jihad, or holy war, against the infidels of the world. And that by killing an infidel, which is commanded to all Muslims, they are assured a place in heaven. If that is the case, can you give me the definition of an infidel? <laughs> I love this guy. This guy's cool. There was no disagreement with my statements, and without hesitation, he replied, non-believers. Right there. Admitting it on American soil. He makes the absolute statement, which is just confirmed, with everything we've just went over, and all the quotes from the Quran, that they have declared holy war against the infidels, who this Muslim cleric says are just purely non-believers in Islam, which would be, you know, anybody who doesn't believe in Islam. Holy war against the infidels, and that by killing an infidel, they are sure to place in heaven. And then so this pastor responds, I responded, quote, So let me make sure I have this straight. All followers of Allah have been commanded to kill everyone who is not of your faith, so that they can have a place in heaven. Is that correct? The expression on the imam's face changed from one of authority and command to that of a little boy who had just been caught with his hand in a cookie jar. He sheepishly replied, yes. <laughs> hey! A little bit of honesty. Wow! Oh, they were hoping nobody would ever ask him any of these types of questions, even though it's obvious if you read their own literature what their agenda is. Oh, we've been caught. Oh, you got us. You know, hey, you know, we want to kill y'all and we want to slaughter you and chop off your heads. But, come on, guys. I mean, you know, we don't want to take this too seriously. I mean, yes, this is ultimately what our goal is. But we don't want you to know that yet, really. We want to kind of placate you and let the devil get his foot in the door and then his head and then his whole body. And, and then ultimately we'll kill you. Or you'll convert to our religion. You know, is there anything wrong with that? Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic here, but this is time. There's a time and a place for sarcasm, and I'm. I, <laughs> I'd say this is it. Um, so he, this imam, sheepishly replied, "Yes." And then the pastor stated, Well, sir, I have a real problem trying to imagine Pope John Paul commanding all Catholics to kill those of your faith. Now, he's saying this because a Catholic preached, Protestant, uh, a Catholic gave a presentation, a Protestant gave a presentation, and the, and the Islam people gave a presentation. So he said, Now, the thing about that statement is, I have no problem seeing John Paul commanding that, because the Catholics slaughtered and killed and massacred more than anyone during, during the uh, supposed Holy Crusades or whatever. But he's trying to make a point here, so bear, bear with me. He says, well, sir, I have a real problem trying to imagine Pope John Paul commanding all Catholics to kill those of your faith, or Dr. Paul Stanley ordering all Protestants to do the same in order to guarantee them a place in heaven. See, now this is where the rubber meets the road here. You know, could you imagine as me as a Christian getting on the air like I am right now and saying, well, you know, I got this new doctrine for everybody. And, you know, I found this little lost book or whatever, the Gospel of uh, Judas. And, uh, 
you know, in the Gospel of Judas, it, it says this and that, and it says in this little part there, it says actually the way to salvation is for all the Christians to go out and kill anybody who's, who's a non-believer in Christianity. Either kill them or convert them. That's the only way you're going to get into heaven, guys. I'm sorry. I just found this out. Do you think the Muslims would take offense to that? Oh, they can't take a dose of their own medicine. Oh, they can dish it out, but they can't take it. So he asked him this question. What if what if Dr. Stanley ordered all Protestants to do the same in order to guarantee them a place in heaven? To kill all those who, who don't believe in the faith. And then at that point the imam was speechless. Because his hypocrisy was being brought out in the open for all to see. And then he said, I continued, I also have a problem with, you, with being your friend when you and your brother clerics are telling your followers to kill me. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have your Allah who tells you to kill me in order for you to go to heaven? Or my Jesus who tells me to love you because I am going to heaven and he wants you to be there with me? <laughs> oh man, I love this guy. And then he said, then he said, you could have heard a pin drop as the imam hung his head in shame. <laughs> he had been found out. He had been exposed. This is great. Needless to say, the organizers and the promoters of the diversification training seminar were not happy with Rick's way of dealing with Islamic imam and exposing the truth about his Muslim beliefs. Oh, yeah. It's okay. You know, he needs to be able to worship the way he sees fit. Well, you know what? Part of their worship and the way they see fit is to kill us. Do you have a problem with that? Do you have a problem with a Muslim coming and chopping your head off? Well, if they're practicing their religion, and we need to let them practice it any way they want, we shouldn't have a problem with that, guys. Come on! Let's, let's just all lay down and, and lay down our necks on the chopping block and let them lop them off. In the name of Allah. In 21 years, there will be enough Muslim voters in the U.S. to, to elect the president. Now, I don't think we're going to go another 21 years. Okay? So I think that's a moot point. Uh, I think everyone in the U.S. should be required to re read this. But with the liberal justice system, liberal media, and the ACLU, there is no way this will be wide, widely publicized. That's why I encourage you to take this, this teaching that I'm doing and send it out to your friends. If you want them to know this information. Uh, this person that did this, is this is the true story, and, and the author, Rick Mathis, is a well-known leader in the prison ministry. So if you do a keyword search for Rick Mathis, M-A-T-H-E-S, and prison ministry on the internet. You'll probably find them. This article was up on Chick, www.chick.com. So, yeah, pretty interesting stuff here. Now, we're going to end with uh, this last section on, on Allah. You've heard of me refer to Allah as the moon god. And there's a track, another track. Chick has several tracks on the Muslims, okay? Really good ones. And it's called Allah had no son. Okay, like God the Father has Jesus Christ as his son. Okay, Allah had no son. It even says that in the Quran. So if we're worshipping the same God, why does Allah have no son? Oh, you know, I don't know. Well, this whole track goes through the whole thing. So, let's talk about a little bit now about archaeology in the Middle East. <clears throat> the religion of Islam has its focus of worship as a deity on the, by the name of Allah. Muslims claim that Allah, in pre-Islamic times, was the biblical God of the patriarchs, prophets, and the apostles. 
which is a life in the pit of hell. We're going to prove that. The, is, the issue is thus of one of continuity. Was Allah the biblical God or a pagan God in Arabia during pre-Islamic times? The Muslims' claim of continuity is essential in their attempt to convert Jews and Christians, for if Allah is part of the flow of divine revelation in Scripture, then it is the next step in biblical religion. But again, the Quran totally contradicts the Bible, so how could you ever marry the two together? Oh, they're going to find a way to do it, unfortunately. They're, they're working on that, as we've already seen. Thus, we should all become Muslims. But on the other hand, if that were true, but on the other hand, if Allah was a pre-Islamic pagan deity, then its core claim is refuted. Religious claims often fall before the results of hard sciences such as archaeology. We can endlessly speculate about the past or go and dig it up and see what evidence it actually reveals. <clears throat> this is the only way to find out the truth concerning the, the origins of Allah, as we, well, I don't think it's the only way, but it's a, it's a good way, it's a good way to have hard evidence. <clears throat> as we shall see, the hard evidence demonstrates that the God, Allah, was a pagan deity. In fact, he was the moon god who was married to the sun goddess. And the stars were his daughters. Oh, isn't that nice? One big hit, pagan happy family. Now, here we're looking at a picture of the moon god from all four sides. And it says, there's a little note here, note the crescent moon on his chest. Okay, this is how we start getting into the, the symbol of the crescent moon, which is what you see on the um, Islamic flag. Okay, the crescent moon and the star. Okay, now, the crescent moon and the star is also symbolic of <clears throat> uh, a lot of things like Semiramis, and Nimrod, and these types of things. The crescent moon is symbolic also of the female genitalia. The star is symbolic of the phallus symbol. Okay, so it's another way we can have the procreative union, and this is just one of the more perverted uh, things that, you know, is part of the Islamic religion. Now, um, archaeologists have uncovered temples to the moon god throughout the Middle East. From the mountains of Turkey to the banks of the Nile, the most widespread religion of the ancient world was the worship of the moon god. <clears throat> in the first literate civilization, the Sumerians have left of thousands of clay tablets in which they describe their religious beliefs. As demonstrated by Sojaberg and Hall, the ancient Sumerians worshipped a moon god who was called by many different names. The most popular names were Nana, Sun, and Asa Babar. His symbol was the crescent moon. Given the amounts of artifacts concerning the worship of the moon god, it is clear that this was the dominant religion of Samaria. The cult of the moon god was the most popular religion throughout ancient Mesopotamia. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Attacaeans took the word soon and transformed that into the word sin. S-I-N. As their favorite name for the moon god. And I have a little quote here. Wow, how appropriate is that? The moon god's name was actually, they called him Sin. S-I-N. How ironic and how appropriate. <laughs> and they were the ones that did it. So, as Professor Potts pointed out, Sin is a name, essentially Sumerian in origin, which has been borrowed by the Semites. In ancient 
Syria and Cana, the moon god Sin, was usually represented by the moon in its crescent phase. At the times, the full moon was placed inside of the crescent moon to emphasize all phases of the moon. The sun god was the wife of Sin, or the moon god, and the stars were their daughters. For example, Ish... Istar was the daughter of Sin. Sacrifices to the moon god are described in the Pashamara texts. In the Ugaric texts, the moon god was sometimes called Kusha. In Persia, as well as Egypt, the moon god is depicted on wall murals and on the heads of statues. He was the judge of men and gods. So he, in other words, was the highest deity in their pagan pantheon. Okay? He wasn't the only deity, he was just considered the highest. And that's a theme we're going to see. Consistent. The Old Testament constantly rebuked the worship of the moon god. Where? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy 4.19. Deuteronomy 4.19. Now, this is God warning. Uh, the uh, Israel. And lest thou lift up, lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun, and the moon, and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them. Now this was a com- constant temptation for the Israelites, because they had come out of idolatry of, of the Egypt, because they had been in captivity for all those years, and they had learned the way of the heathen. Well, how do you know that? Well, why do you think they made a golden calf when they came out of Egypt, when they went through the Red Sea and all this other stuff? It was a constant battle to keep from going back to what they had known for, you know, all this time they'd been in captivity. So it says... You know, this is not something you, you want to do when you lift up your eyes unto heaven and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all the nations under the whole heaven. See, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ created the heavens and the moons, but he doesn't say we should worship them. It would be just like if an angel showed up in front of you and you bow down and want to worship the angel. He created the angel, but, he's not, but you are not supposed to worship him. Because God shares His glory with nobody. You're not supposed to worship the, the, the sun and the moons and all these stars. And that's why God says in the second commandment, Thou shalt not make any graven image before thee. And then it talks about, you know, things in the uh, above and below and beneath. Because it's always man's temptation, because the devil is there behind this, to worship things that are God's creation, but not to worship the Creator. That's the big that's the, the thing that you have to stay away from. So if we go then to Deuteronomy seventeen three. Deuteronomy seventeen three. <clears throat> now this is God um, warning. And hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon, here we go with the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded. Okay, so this is all forbidden. Second Kings Twenty three five. Second Kings twenty three five. Okay, and he put down the idolatrous priest 
whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places of the city of Judah, and in the places round about Jerusalem, and also them that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon, and to the planets and to all the host of heaven. Okay, so this is something that God always forbids. Okay? This was what Josiah was coming against. Okay, these types of things. Uh, and the last one, let's go to Jeremiah 8.2. Jeremiah 8.2. And they shall spread before them the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, whom they have loved, and whom they have served. Now it says they love these things? The moon and the host of heaven and... They have loved, they've served them, and after whom they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped. And that's sick. Come on. You're worshipping the moon? They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be for the dung upon the face of the earth, which is their fate. This was the fate of following the moon, or the stars, or the host of heaven, or the moon god, or whatever. They shall be as for dung upon the face of the earth. And unfortunately, that's the same fate that the Muslims face if they don't repent. When Israel fell into idolatry, usually, it was usually in part the cult of the moon god, as we've just seen. Okay? As a matter of fact, everywhere in the ancient world, the symbol of the crescent moon can be found on seal impressions, steels, pottery, amulets, clay tablets, cylinders, weights, earrings, necklaces, wall mules, etc. In Tel El Obed, a copper calf was found with a crescent moon on its forehead. An idol with the body of a bull and the head of a man has a crescent moon inlaid on his forehead with shells. In Ur, the stelia of Ur-Namu has a crescent symbol placed on top of the register of gods because the moon god was the head of gods. Even bread was baked in the form of a crescent as an act of devotion to the moon god. The Ur of Chaldees were so devoted to the moon god that it was sometimes called Nan Nanar in tablets from that time period. Not sure what that means, but a temple of the moon god has been excavated in Ur by Sir Leonard Woolley. He dug up many examples of moon worship in Ur, and these are displayed in the British Museum to this day. Haran was likewise noted for his devotion to the moon god. In the 1950s, a major temple to the moon god was excavated in Hazor in Palestine. Two idols of the moon god were found. Each was a statue of a man sitting on a throne with a crescent moon carved on his chest. The accompanying inscriptions make it clear that these were idols of the moon god. Several smaller statues were found which were identified by their inscriptions as the daughters of the moon god. What about in Arabia? As pointed out by Professor Kuhn, Muslims are notoriously loath to preserve the traditions of the earlier paganism and likely to garble what pre-Islamic history they permit to survive in achronistic terms. Now let me just define what all that means. Number one, let's go back to where it says that um, several smaller statues were found which were identified by their inscriptions as the daughters of the moon god. Remember, they said that the moon god was married to the sun sun goddess, or whatever, and that their daughters were the stars, and he had three daughters. Notice, it doesn't ever say they have a son. That's why they say Allah has no son. And if, and if we worship this common God, like the Muslims say, why don't we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? They don't have that. They've got the sun goddess, the moon god, and his three daughters. 
who are stars. Not really too compatible. You know, kind of a kind of a difference there. And then it says Muslims are notoriously loath to preserve the traditions of earlier paganism, and likely to garble what pre-Islamic history they permit to survive in achronistic terms. What does that mean? Because this is this professor guy talking real high and lofty. Basically, what it means is that all of this proof that we're talking about in archaeological terms, the Muslims go out of their way to cover this up because they don't want to be able to point back and say, "Hey, listen." Uh, yeah, Allah is just the moon god, we worshipped him as a pagan deity, we don't want people to, we don't want the Christians and everyone else not to know this isn't the same god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, or, or, or that came through this, the same faith, we don't want people to know that. So they go out of the way to cover this stuff up, these archaeological finds. Which, you know, if you were the devil, that's what you would do. During the 1950s, Wendell Phillips and Richard Bauer and others excavated sites in Quataban, Timnia and Marub. Thousands of inscriptions from walls and rocks in northern Arabia have also been collected. Relief and votive bowls used in worship of the daughters of Allah have been discovered. Uh, the archaeological evidence demonstrates that the dominant religion of Arabia was the cult of the moon god. And guess what? It still is today. Nothing's changed. It's just repackaged a little bit. It's the moon god. It's not God, the god of the Bible like the Muslims try to say. It's an abomination. In Old Testament times, Nabonius, the last king of Babylon, built Tema, Arabia, as a center of moon god worship. Sigal stated, South Arabia's stellar region has always been dominated by the moon god in various variations. Many scholars have also noticed that the moon god's name, which is Sin, S-I-N, is part of such Arabic words as Sinai and the wilderness of Sin, etc., when the popularity of the moon god waned elsewhere, the Arabs remained true to their conviction that the moon god was the greatest of all gods. While they worshipped 360 gods at the Kaaba in Mecca, which is that big black building they march around, you know, while they worshipped 360 gods there, the moon god was the chief deity. Mecca was built, Mecca was in fact built as a shrine to the moon god. See, all this is, is paganism. This has nothing to do with Bible. We have, no, we have no common ground with Muslims. Not a bit. Everything that we... I mean, God forbids this. This is what made um, this Mecca, this is what made it the most sacred site in Arabian paganism. In 1944, G. Canton Thompson revealed in her book Tombs and the Moons of Harudaha, that she had uncovered a temple of the moon god in southern Arabia, the symbols of the crescent moon, and no less than 21 inscriptions with the name of Sin were found in the temple. An idol, which may be the moon god himself, was also discovered, which was later confirmed by other archaeologists. The evidence reveals that the temple of the moon god was active even in the Christian era. Evidence gathered from both North and South Arabia demonstrate the moon god worship was clearly active, even in Muhammad's day, and was still the dominant cult. According to numerous inscriptions, while the name of the moon god was Sin, his title was Aliyah, the deity, meaning that he was the chief or high god among the gods. As Kud pointed out, the god La was originally a phase of the moon god. The moon god was called 
either it's Ali or Allah, the God, which was then shortened to Allah in pre-Islamic times. This is no different than we have, you know, today where, where you had originally Nimrod, you know, Tammuz and Semiramis, and then that evolved into other pagan deities like Isis and Horus and these types of things. All they are are different pagan deities repackaged in different ways. Sometimes it's a matter of shortening a name. Okay? It just says a little bit different for near. It's all of the devil, though. So this is how we got the name Allah. Okay? The pagan Arabs even used Allah in the names they gave to their children. For example, both Muhammad's father and his uncle had Allah as part of their names. The fact that they were given such names by their pagan parents proves that Allah was the title for the moon god even in Muhammad's day. Professor Kuhn goes on to say, Similarly, under Muhammad's tutelage, the relatively anonymous La became Allah, the God, or Allah, the Supreme Being. This is how this evolved into this, from a demonic standpoint. This, this fact answers the questions, why is Allah never defined in the Quran? Why did Muhammad assume that the pagan Arabs already knew who Allah was? Muhammad was raised in the religion of the moon god Allah, but he went one step further than his fellow pagan Arabs, and this is the key. He went one step further, they had 360 gods in Mecca that they worshipped, but this moon god, this god Sin, this Allah was the chief one, so what he did is, while they believed that Allah, the other pharaoh, fellow Arabs, they, while they believed that Allah, the moon god, was the greatest of all gods, and the supreme deity in the pantheon of their pagan deities, Muhammad decided that Allah was not only the greatest god, but the only god. And that's why they say they're monotheistic, that they worship one god, essentially like the Christians do. They're monotheistic. Well, we just worship Allah. He's the same God you were. That's a lie from the pit of hell. From the story I heard, what he did is he, Muhammad went into that big black building where all these 360 deities were, and he, and he knocked them all down. He broke them all until there was only one left, and that was Allah. And that was when Allah had total preeminence was, was, and was considered the greatest of all gods. Okay? In effect, he said, this is what Allah, or Muhammad said, Look, you already believe that the moon god, Allah, is the greatest of all gods. All I want you to do is accept that the idea that he is the only god. I am not taking away Allah you already worship. I am only taking away his wife and his daughters and all the other gods. This is seen from the fact that the first point of the Muslim creed is not Allah is great, but Allah is great, greatest. He is the greatest among the gods. Okay, all their pagan pantheon. Why would, Ma why would Muhammad say that Allah is the greatest except in a polytheistic context? Meaning multiple god worship context. The Arabic word is used to contrast the greater from the lesser. That is true. That this is true is seen from the fact that the pagan Arabs never accused Muhammad of preaching a different Allah than the one they already worshipped. This, quote, Allah was the moon god. According to archaeological evidence, Muhammad thus attempted to have it both ways. Which lines up perfectly with the hypocrisy that we've constantly seen as the thread through this whole teaching. He wanted to have it both ways. To the pagans, he said that he still believed in the moon god Allah, and to the Jews and the Christians, he said that Allah was their god too. Oh, it's the same thing they're doing right now, isn't it? 
but both Jews and Christians knew better at the time, and that was why they rejected his God, Allah, as a false God. But see, they don't know that anymore. We, they're, they're too dumbed down. Too dumbed down. They have no idea anymore. Al-Kindi, one of the early Christian apologists against Islam, pointed out that Islam and its God, Allah, did not come from the Bible, but from paganism of the Sabaeans. They did not worship the God of the Bible, but the moon God and his daughters, Al-Uzi, Al-Wate, and Manut. Dr. Newman concludes his study of the early Christian Muslim debates by stating, quote, Islam proved itself to be a separate and antagonistic religion, which had sprung up from idolatry. Islamic scholar Caesar Farah concluded, There is no reason, therefore, to accept the idea that Allah passed to the Muslims from the Christian and Jews. The errors the Arabs worshipped the moon god as their supreme deity, but this was not biblical monotheism. While the moon god was greater than all other gods and goddesses, this was still a polytheistic pantheon of deities. Now that we have the actual idols of the moon god, it is no longer possible to avoid the fact that Allah was a pagan god in pre-Islamic times. Is it any wonder then that the symbol of, the, of Islam is the crescent moon? I mean, that's their symbol. That that a crescent moon that sits on top of their mosques and minarets. That a crescent moon is found on the flags of the Islamic nations. That the Muslims fast during the month of Ramadan, which begins and ends with the appearance of the crescent moon in the sky. Everything they do revolves around the crescent moon, which is symbolic of sin or Allah, which is the moon god. Conclusion, the pagan Arabs worshipped the moon god Allah by praying toward Mecca several times a day, making a pilgrimage to Mecca, running around the temple of the moon god called the Kaaba, kissing the black stone, killing an animal and sacrifice to the moon god, throwing stones at the devil, oh that's a good one, and fasting for the month which begins and ends with the crescent moon. The Muslims claim that Allah is the god of the Bible. And that, the Islam, and that Islam rose from the religion of the prophets and the apostles is refuted by solid, overwhelming archaeological evidence. Islam is nothing more than a revival of the ancient moon god cult. It has taken the symbols, the rites, the ceremonies, and even the name of its god from the ancient pagan religion of the moon god. As such, it is sheer idolatry and must be rejected by all those who follow the Bible. I'm hoping that today we covered about every facet. Not, not in totality, but we hopefully hit on just about every facet of this devil religion. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this out for today's teaching. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord God, and that you've enabled us to come together. I pray, God, that your truth would go forth in the name of Jesus Christ, that thy name be glorified, that you would forgive us for any and all sins, Lord God, in heaven that we've committed in any way, shape, and form, that you would cleanse us from presumptuous sins and secret faults, that they would not have dominion over us, Lord God, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. That, Lord, this truth would go forth and that you would expose just not the darkness that we talked about today, but all this darkness that is going on, on the planet. That, Lord God, that you would wake up your remnant and spur them to action, Lord, because we're, not, we're just not put on this planet just to sit around, Lord God, and not take action. And Lord God, I know we are the body of Christ, and that every part of that body has a different function. I just pray, God, that you spur the remnant to whatever function you would have them go to, in the name of Jesus Christ. And that we would be obedient to you, Lord God, above all. That, Lord God, you would be used, that, that you would be manifested mightily 
through your remnant, Lord God, that through us you would lead many people to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through us, Lord God, that your name be glorified. We love you, Lord God. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.